Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Welcome back to this week's episode of In the Landscape. Thank you for joining us for another hopefully thrilling, (laughs) thrilling episode of this podcast. A dappled episode. Yes. Oh, dappled. I love it. Yes, we are. We're going to, we're going to go calm. We're going to go soothing. We're going to go into the shade garden this week. Just ease on into the cool, crisp greenness that is Mm -hmm. a lovely shade garden this week has has just been busy with the usual stuff, but you had an opportunity to visit a really exciting park oh, in right. Houston. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little about that? Sure. Yeah, good update. Let's see. The last I went to Herman Park like in the last couple of weeks. Mm. This past weekend, my son and I did an outing to Memorial Park, which is about fifteen hundred acres. So it's Central Park is about eight hundred and sixty three acres. So it's like. People, if anybody knows Central Park, it's like twice that big. It's very big. Everything's bigger in Texas. <laughs> right. Yeah, twice as how big, twice as big. Uh, I mean, New York and Texas have a lot in common. They're sort of like, like larger than life. Yeah. If people actually do well, some people from Texas I've met moved to New York and then vice yeah. versa. Yeah. <laughs> so Memorial Park is like within the city center, or not exactly the center. Center is really the central business district with the skyscrapers. but. And then a sub, it's, it's big enough, like Central Park has this, there's like parks within the park. And there's something called the Eastern Glades, which is a new, mm. newly developed section within Memorial Park, which was uh, Nelson Bird and Waltz, if I'm pronouncing that right, uh, is the firm. That's a Houston firm that does, you know, really amazing work. It's really, they describe themselves, the intersection of like ecology and and a cultural landscape. So it's, and it, it really it was very exciting to see there's like storm water. So the water, since flooding such an issue and lots of reforesting with native plants, there were lots of active recreation. So mm-hmm. there were areas, it was more or less these concentric circles for jogging, uh, walking, biking. Then there were, then there was passive recreation areas, beautiful lawn areas. And there was more yeah, or less. And that grass was really neat. What oh, was right. that again? It said it was zoysia grass, mm, mm-hmm. which is like a very fine, very fine texture. It looked like a fescue to me, but but I'm familiar with some of the Japanese gardens use zoysia because oh, yeah. it turns it goes dormant in the winter. It has how I know it in a temperate climate, so it turns like a blondish color. Well, well it was a beautiful park. It was a nice sunny day, but it's starting to cool off here just a little bit, and so people were really making a lot of use of the different elements in the park, which was exciting. So, right. Yeah, and then and then as we were driving on our way out of the park, we passed some of the signs kind of announcing additional development. Oh, um, right. And it looks like one of the sort of innovations that they're going to implement is to cover the roadway with a land bridge. So it'll actually oh, be this right. massive connected kind of parkland landscape, which mm-hmm. is really, you know, connecting Connecting land across roadways is such an ecological benefit. A lot of the animals that are trying to make their homes in these parks, you know, I mean, they're not, mm-hmm. they're not truly wild, but you still do get some wildlife living in them and, and they can't make it. You know, the roadways are so hazardous. Mm-hmm. I think especially for one of the, the animals so 
iconic here in Texas, the armadillo, oh, really right. struggles. You see that on the road. It's horrible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like as like the mortality for yeah. people too. It's safe for yeah. yeah. Like to separate. Central Park does that well. The circulation where the different types of transportation are separated. So right. horseback riding is on one level. Walkers are on a different level. Bikers on another with overpasses. Yeah. You know, it was a neat water feature, which our son enjoyed, where, you know, doing like landscape plans, you're always aware of what, what's the elevation, like above sea level. And so if it's a home, it's like first floor elevations is, is a special number. And then how many feet up or down. So they had elevation that it was these large paving steps and there's a water feature which is like a i think it's called a lake i'm not sure if it's mm-hmm. not enormous but and they had the elevation and they were descending into the water so the top one that i saw it said like maybe 55 feet so mm-hmm. 55 feet above sea level so it's just we're very low here in houston <laughs> and then there were some that were covered up that were down into like 52 that were underwater so you could barely and there was a a a very contemporary sort of uh, promenade and a waterfall right mm-hmm. next to that. Mm-hmm. And so it was really illustrating. And it was very like a didactic element of, of what the level is and is there a drought? And it was, I thought it was very well done. And it was animated, like our son wanted to go right down to the edge of the water. We also have had a couple of family members out west, um, one in California, one in Oregon. Thankfully, unharmed and and their property is intact, um, but having uh, certainly having to evacuate Mm -hmm. um, a lot of concern there because of wildfires. And we didn't want to do this episode on ecology. (laughs) We're going to kind of avoid that, but we did want to. You know, it's I think because this is a landscape podcast. You know, it's the people, livestock, pets, and wildlife. Like there's 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 a bit of a an order to who we think of in terms of safety and well-being. But I have to say, like on our minds, we know a lot of growers out there who have these beautiful nurseries and specimen trees that they've cultivated for, for years. It's like multi-generational yeah. sometimes. Sometimes it's someone's yeah. grandfather planted the tree, then the father grew it, and now it's the daughter, you know, cultivating yeah. or selling it. So our hearts go out to everybody in the region. It's really, really hard to watch, really scary for family members to be going through and, and, and livelihoods are on the line as well. And it's <laughs> sort of my home region and, and really just distressing. So we're thinking of everybody and, um, and hope, hope folks are making it through all this safely, mm-hmm. first and foremost. And then that the region is able to recover and that we're able to I don't know, support that in whatever way we can within, within the landscape industry in right. terms of, you know, our own, our own little green, <laughs> green efforts. One of the growers there, that, I mean, their specialty are unusual plants, large specimens, very large, like the largest Japanese maple you've ever seen. And so I correspond, there's plenty of folks out there I correspond with of, sometimes it's something directly, do you have this, but it's often just getting in industry information. And we've gotten some nice referrals that way where somebody is doing a special project like a regarding boxwood or some kind of restoration. So it's we really develop these long-term relationships with these folks that are you get to know them, their family, you know, where they're from. So it's hard to see when there's when there's a this giant disturbance. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. So uh, we didn't want to leave that unmentioned because it is part of the current times um, for us, pretty pretty immediate in, in many ways. And yet we're, you know, family's okay for the for the moment. And and so we're we're here talking about shade gardens. It's just sort of a contrast. So hopefully mm-hmm. it's something that kind of like <laughs> give you that that cool feeling on these waning hot days here in the northern hemisphere. I imagine down south they're starting to warm up a little bit. Actually right. looking forward to <laughs> kind of their own warm season. So it's fun to consider that as well. So shade gardens, what is it? I think they're actually some of my favorites. I love sunshine, but shade gardens in particular, I think are especially appealing. You know, that the Japanese style, the kind of density with which things are planted, the lushness you get. Is mm-hmm. there something something going on in the design of a shade garden that makes it more appealing than these like open <laughs> landscapes? Or, and, and is it, you know, I guess it's probably just a matter of preference. Well, I would say- my guess is it, it would go back to maybe the biology of it. So if you're in the shade, you think people have houseplants. If you have houseplants that have very large leaves, they need shade almost always. And then you think of the other extreme would be like a pine tree. I mean, that's still a leaf, but it's a, it's a needle. It's like the size of, it's thickness of a pin or a cactus in a way is there's no leaves. Really. I mean, it's like, a, it's almost just a trunk. So ecologically, in the shade, you need to have big leaves. So if you think of an understory in a forest, if you're out in nature taking a hike, it's pretty dense. It's often pretty dense, whether it's tropics, subtropics, temperate. So I think that is a characteristic of shade. Now, there's also the competition. There may not be as broad a spectrum of plants that grow in the shade. Mm. I, could, I could be wrong. I mean, because a rainforest is an enormous. It's very diverse. But if I think of as a designer, when someone, if they have shade, they often say we have to limit the aperture a little bit. Like you're not going to grow roses in the shade. Mm-hmm. Sure. So the leaves tend to be bigger, and the plants that are there tend to be quite competitive. Now there's plants that don't even try to compete. So I think that's part of it. Now, we've talked a lot. And in fact, if you take one of our design courses, you'll see that one of the places we typically start is, is well, figure out your program and then do the inventory. And the sun shade assessment is a big part. And some of the shade assessment, we've talked about this on the program before, probably on the color episode, has to do with the way certain colors almost have an iridescence when they're in the lower low light. And so you're saying, well, you can't grow roses. And I'm kind of thinking of the big, showy, colorful plants. But actually, you can do quite a bit with the foliage if you're doing your planting in a shade garden. It can be very bright. If I'm working with a new client, sometimes they're younger couples, and this is their first home with a garden. That's not uncommon. So I often explain when you're, if we're doing a shade garden, we're often going to get color from, particularly in a temperate climate, like the Northeast where we work. We're often going to get color from foliage, not from a flower. You're probably not going to have a flower for months and months and months mm. in the shade. Well, something like coneflowers, black-eyed Susan, some of those, you could have months and months of flowers, actually, in the sun. So once you sort of frame that and they say, oh, okay, so it'll be a leaf, but that could be, I think of the Japanese akuba, there's one I think it's called gold dust. So it's a long leaf 
narrower than it is wide. And it looks like somebody splattered like a Jackson Pollock uh, splattered gold paint on the leaf. So is it, and the hot, of course, hostas are a favorite and the hybridization, they keep churning out more beautiful. And there are some miniature ones where the leaves are like the size of your thumb. And then some of the largest ones really feel tropical where it could be like a 20 inch wide leaf. So my mom's garden here in Houston is quite a bit shadier than ours. Ours is open where we're planting like palms and other like agave and things like that. Mm -hmm. And and she has the big elephant ears and like, it's this whole other, it's fun to visit because it's this whole other scene. Mm -hmm. Of course she can't grow the vegetables the way she wants to, because she doesn't have enough sun for that. But there is a bit of a give and take usually. And so Mm -hmm. you have to kind of work with what you have, but yeah, the foliage can just get massive. We have a photo of our son kind of like he's covered by uh, an elephant ear. It can get um, to be like three feet, you know, in length. So we often focus on plants and then we have to circle back and do a separate episode on furniture because <laughs> 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 we're, we're sort of like plant people first. But a lot of people think design is like the sort of decorative elements. And mm-hmm. I kind of want to address that because color is so important in the shade and there's an opportunity there to either brighten up the space or almost create like I'm I'm really thinking of like fairy gardens and gnomes with moss on everything so um what's your recommendation in terms of like do you go bright and bold to kind of like draw attention or how would you handle it in terms of design I guess it's always based on the on the client's preferences so and there's times where we try to push the client like this is a little beyond your comfort zone but we think that's still really enjoy it based on your feedback. Sometimes people are, it's human nature. Sometimes we're limited. I've never done that before. I can't imagine having bright orange chairs in the shade. So that's one approach. Uh, but they'll have like bright orange in the house. So right. you're thinking like, ah, oh, we can connect these spaces and draw Correct. the eye. And, right. Yeah. So if it's part of like you, you get to know people and their yeah. personality. That's that famous Ellen Shipman quote, how the landscape should be a portrait of the client. Mm-hmm. So whatever the client's personality is, that to me is the hot, like, that's the ideal. Second, only to right plant in the right place, because it's almost like our highest ideal is like, are the plants happy? Right, because it's not going to look, it's not going it to succeed. Work. Yeah, it won't work, yeah. So yeah. furniture in the shade, it can, and same with hardscaping, the shade can be, it can be slippery, mm. or you can get moss or lichen on furniture. So it's on, a, let's say, a, an aluminum furniture or cast iron. So there's some furnitures that will that tend to be free of you know moss or mildew but mm-hmm. some of the cushions can get can get mildewy so mm-hmm. it's just but there's great products you know that are more or less resistant to that there's more there's synthetic products the paving you have to be really careful what paving like having mm-hmm. brick or a traditional blue stone now there's blue there's some of the stones are treated it's like a like a flame finish where it adds texture or oh, okay. there's t- pavers that have texture. So that's very important of, now let's say it's, it might be a, a sunny garden where pl- you're planting trees, designing a patio in a couple decades, it may be shady. Mm. And so that pad, that patio is still going to be there. Right. So it might be perfect in the short term. So good design does lay that out yeah. and just presents a client with, here's what I think. And the furniture, maybe the the mildew resistant furniture is two times as expensive. Mm-hmm. You could say, you know, th- this furniture will last a decade. Are you good with that? Or there's this other furniture that's going to last three decades. Right. Because essentially the 
the paving becomes too slippery, I guess, to, right. to navigate carefully. It'll be similar I mean, to a roof where like if it, when there's precipitation, it'll stay like a shady part of a roof. Mm-hmm. If it's shaded by a tree, it'll fail to dry out because it's shaded. Right. right. Now, something they do here all the time in, in the text, in, in Houston in particular, because it's not dry, is power washing. Oh, you see a lot of power washing. Because there's so much, the concrete, the driveways. Yeah, it gets mildew so quickly. Yeah. So we're, we're one of those areas where that investment in the, out, in the real outdoor gear is going to help. And then, of course, you have places where they get snow, and that's a whole other, and freezing. Mm-hmm. And so that's a whole other element to wear and tear on your furniture or your patio. And the plants will have adapted whatever. They're either going to disappear or, or they can handle right. it. But, but the furniture and the, and the hardscaping may not. You know, I remember I had a, a, it was a favorite professor at Syracuse. Uh, George was his name. He was, he's like an, an emeritus professor now. He's like retired, mm-hmm. I believe. And he had a beautiful shade garden right like near campus and very contemporary paving. There was a small goldfish pond. And he lost a large tree. Mm-hmm. So he had this, you know, meticulous, like a patchwork quilt of incredible rare shade plants. And then it very quickly became a sunny garden. I remember we visited, he was chatting with my mother and he was explaining, I mean, he was like a consummate gardener, you know, and he explained how it was, it was traumatic. Like all of a sudden these plants he had cultivated mm-hmm. and that can happen mm-hmm. with, yeah. you know, trees it was probably like a tree that was over a hundred years and there was a bad storm. And it was Syracuse is up on a hill, if anybody's ever visited there. So you're on top of a hill with a tall tree. You could lose it in a bad storm. So, But he adapted it. So the, some of the plants got moved. And he probably added some larger shrubs or small trees that then created pretty quickly. Now, there are some plants that are well adapted to the, the lack of sunshine, but that's not the only problem that one encounters in the shade. And as you mentioned, trees can often be the entity that are, you know, the entity that are entities that are creating the shade. And so, you know, what are some of the other problems present? I mean, I've been on a consult with you and you said like, really nothing is going to, like nothing is going to grow here. Like this is when you put in a sculpture garden because right. like there's nothing you can do. Like so that when, old joke, like what yeah. grows under a maple tree like gravel. I mean, oh, sometimes that's, yeah. but there's even. And why is that? So it's not just the shade though. So what are some of the other factors? The roots. Now there are many trees that have dense roots. Maples tend to have, whether it's could be an Asian maple or North American maple, the roots are just very dense mm-hmm. and, and they're close to the surface. And so they're sort of like competing. Right. It's like root yeah. competition. It, the tree's taking up the moisture. So there's not a lot of moisture for anything mm-hmm. as the tree matures. Mm-hmm. And then there's not a lot of surface area. If you look at some very old maples, other trees too, it forms almost like a plate. So mm-hmm. it comes out the root flare and then it looks like somebody spread lava and it just oh. extends out and out and out. Now, can you put gravel around that? Or is that, are you maybe compromising the roots if you try to do anything with that? Do you just sort of accept that there's this kind of perimeter that you have to establish? Well, if it's open ground, you might get weeds. So mm. like a decorative gravel. Mm-hmm. There's one I like using. It looks almost like crushed brick. So it's like a reddish, not like bright red, but a reddish gravel that is very striking. So if you have 
let's say, brick in one part of the property and this crushed red gravel. So you, you can make it decorative. Or mm -hmm. Japanese gardens that I've worked at and visited, it's a crushed marble is often used. So mm -hmm. it's not pure white. There's like little veins of gray in it. And so that is amazing. So you have, remember the Humes Garden on Long Island, that Japanese garden was a Katsura tree. And as people know that, as it matures, the roots look like almost like an octopus, mm. tendrils coming out. Mm. And it gets quite tall out of the ground. So the roots are, it's like 10 inches, you know, that mm. height. But then around it is just ground. And this white crushed marble, it looked exquisite. And this tree, mm. it, it really highlighted if it was open ground or a green ground cover, it wouldn't really highlight the roots, but it really showcased. And it wasn't, and the gravel doesn't compete for anything mm -hmm. that it's, now you don't want to have six inches of gravel, but like a normal, like three inches, let's say the water, water goes through, through to the roots just fine. Right. All right. Any other challenges to be aware of or any other benefits to shade gardens that you can highlight? Well, there's often an, if you're in a dry climate, you probably don't have moss in the, in the shade. Mm. But in many climates, there is some moss. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole movement. Maybe it's old-fashioned now, but like to get rid of moss. If you have moss mm -hmm. in your lawn, there's special chemicals to get rid of moss. So I tend to take the approach, let's work with Mother Nature, which, I mean, that's becoming almost more the norm now, in, like amongst professionals. You know, to, so if there is moss... Some of these famous gardens in Japan, the famous moss garden is Saihoji, if I'm pronouncing that right. And so that was, the story goes, it was, it was derelict or it was like more or less abandoned for a period of time or not cared for in a traditional way. And if people know Kyoto, it got covered in moss, everything, mm. the ground, the trees. The I love moss. I mean, that's, I think part of it for me is I like the moss and the lichens, although lichens mm. can grow out in the very hot rocks but there's something about like the little micro microorganism that mm -hmm. is sort of represented by the <laughs> the moss and the lichens and so i find can, it very appealing you can personally. encourage moss there's yeah when i worked in the northeast for a japanese garden company we ordered moss like it might be called i forget the name exactly but it's a company that sells moss and it would come in sheets and they came ups <laughs> <laughs> i think they're in pennsylvania so if there's, a, if there's already moss, you can buy more or less the spores, which is like ground up moss. You can encourage the moss. Mm -hmm. You can buy sheets of moss. So there's a way to... Moss sod? <laughs> well, correct. It's like moss <laughs> sod. And then you sort of knit it together. Mm -hmm. You wet it. So to me, yeah, whatever is existing there, trying to find the beauty in that. Mm -hmm. A solution when you really can't plant anything in the ground is to have planters in the shade. Oh, sure. And so that can be, there are those hyper tough, I think that's pronouncing it right, where you mix, it's like more or less styrofoam with concrete. So it's, mm -hmm. it's a planter of whatever shape you like, but it's not quite as heavy if it was mm -hmm. solid. And so that's popular for rock gardens. There's many at Wave Hill in the Bronx, they have sort of a collection of that. And at Stone Crop, which is in the Mid-Hudson, that's like the Frank Cabot garden. Mm -hmm. They also have a collection of those. So you can make... The shade, very exciting, interesting mm -hmm. with foliage. And you can do this in dry climates as well, because you did mm -hmm. mention dry. And, you know, we said rainforest, very shady, obviously. So it does seem like a lush, wet landscape. 
but there are, I guess, dry species that thrive in the shade as well. Right. But well, in the South, there's that type of fern that grows on many trees and on structures called the resurrection fern. Hmm. So it looks, it grows on the, on these live oaks in an old landscape. So it looks like a pad or like it's carpeted with dead ferns. And then when it rains, when there's sufficient amount of rain, it it resurrects. Wow. So, I mean, there are many climates in the California coast. There is a rainy season, but the shade there, it's pretty dry. Mm Mm-hmm. There are ferns. Unless you're in Northern California. Oh, then, then you have, yeah. Then, then you're getting into the rainforest, rainforest. Right? <laughs> we don't leave, we don't want to leave half the state out either. Oh, right. Yeah, careful. <laughs> it's, hard, yes. it's like upstate, downstate New York. Yeah, they absolutely. each have their own characteristics, yep, yep. not to lump them together. Far Northern California is a whole other, whole other experience. But there, I mean, some of the bromeliads, those can be so colorful, beautiful in the shade. So containers, let's say you have a seating area. I mean, I could think of some of these very restorative, serene, shady seating areas. So very large tree, having paving coexisting with trees as an art. So you don't, the roots are not damaged. Mm-hmm. There's ways to do that. So there's, there can be a way where you're sort of harmonizing, picking colors of the existing landscape. That's one approach. I mean, it's having some pops of color is, even if it's subtle, maybe mm-hmm. it's just another shade of green. Now, do you recommend lighting in shade gardens? I know, like, for instance, if you go in caves, <laughs> like, um, to, I don't know, Spelunk, <laughs> but, you know, informally, like, just on a cavern tour or something, there is, like, even with the artificial lighting, it, it can create, I don't know, maybe algae starts growing or something, but it's like, well, as soon as you introduce some energy source, things things go a little nuts. So does the artificial lighting in the evenings compromise what you're trying to achieve in a shade garden? Or does it tend to be, you know, a nice way to kind of illuminate that landscape? You know, I don't have like the data in front of me, but I mean, there is data on street lights and does that confuse trees? Huh. I mean, if it's a lot of light, mm. it can confuse the plants, but to a good extent, actually right now it's What's used is like low voltage Mm -hmm. is what landscape lighting tends to be, Mm -hmm. which is, it's still as as luminous as if it was high voltage. (laughs) So that's not a problem. And so I can think of some of these craggy old oak trees or other, you know, with very widespreading Mm -hmm. and uh, ferns hanging from them and potted plants. So, So lighting that, there'd be lots of texture where a full sun garden, you often have brighter colors, sometimes finer textured plants in the sun, that, that, that tends to be hard to light. So a mm, shade garden mm-hmm. with broader foliage, I mean, more or less lots of shade to green and texture, that, that's fantastic for lighting. Mm. And it's going to become darker sooner. Mm-hmm. So here, mm-hmm. like when we're you know, out and about, we have that, an area where we walk in the evening and there's lights on a bridge and it comes on. I mean, now it's seven something. Mm-hmm. So if you're in the shade, people like, I was just chatting with a client and we were discussing outdoors, designing an outdoor space. And they were explaining they wanted to entertain like through November you know, or, or mm-hmm. to November, at least. Mm-hmm. It's still very nice to be outside, yeah. depending where you are. And so, so the lighting's important because it's going to start getting dark at five, six. And so there's still lots of hours before bedtime. That's true. That is so true. All right. Well, we're getting sort of farther along in this episode. I just want to make sure I don't miss anything that you wanted to cover. 
um, anything you'd like to share with us about some of the oh, you know, plants, a, a plant landscape type that that is fun is a stumpery. Mm. So there's lots of, I mean, English gardens are where I know of it. It's not unique necessarily to England, but uh, Prince Charles's garden is called Highgrove, his like main residence, and there's a well-known stumpery there where there's. So imagine if, when you're clearing land which actually is done a lot in Texas, you see a big giant mound of stumps and debris where they're clearing it for some purpose. So the stumps can be quite an asset where they can be used in a sculptural element. Now, some of these are like quite like a, a stump that would be as large as your kitchen table, you know, very large. And if those were turned upside down and they become this, you know, very exciting element mm-hmm. and a different stumpery garden than all the shade perennials are worked in the hostas the ferns it makes me think of another my grandmother i may even have mentioned flathead lake montana where she used to live she would collect driftwood i Mm. I suppose you could do this if you had access to a lake or uh, maybe a river but an ocean beach but um Mm -hmm. then it's a similar idea that you have this like wood that's maybe got nooks and crannies and you can be kind of planting in and amongst that area. You would want to check, of course, like the, the rules of collection wherever you are, because you're not supposed to take everything that's lying around. But if you don't have access to big stumps, you know, that driftwood idea can be really quite nice as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Similar idea. And there are plants that like when we're doing master planning, which has been one of the benefits of design is saying, we're going to stop. We're going to look at the whole area, whether it's public, private, whatever the scale is, and and make design suggestions. So there's some unity. Now, I mean, variety is exciting of a sun and garden and a shade garden. So I'm often faced with, well, I'm often seeking a plant, with, whether it's a shrub or ground cover perennial, that can work in both the sun and the shade. Mm-hmm. So there is unity. Mm-hmm. So let's say there's a hedge or there's a ground cover, having it abruptly stop where it gets very sunny. Now, there's ways to play that up. And so I found that has been helpful in my career, you know, having that horticultural knowledge of, I can think of plants like the skip laurel we use for hedging, where it's a large evergreen leaf and it can, ha- it can grow in the sun or the shade. And there's plants that really are quite limited where... Mm. It's not like bayberry, let's say. It's not going to be do well. That hedge is going to stop. It's going to thin out mm-hmm. in the shade. And the same with ground covers. There's ground covers and perennials that can handle a little bit of both. Now, it's interesting because you use the word dappled at the beginning of our episode. And I'm thinking kind of like deep shade, like not mm. a lot of dapple. <laughs> but, and, and of course, many of us, I mean, hopefully this is helpful because we sometimes inherit shade gardens but if you're planning a shade garden do you want to what kind of trees would you be thinking about to create maybe more of a dappled effect versus a deep like covered you know really dark shady area that's really important yeah depending where you are what your climate is so if you're in if you're in a hot climate maybe you do want pretty dark shade Mm -hmm. like you want full shade which I guess the live oaks are what we use for that. I mean, you get pretty dark under there. So. Right. <laughs> Which, when it's hotter and blazes Texas, that's like, you want that's 100%. what you want, right? Yes. It'd be like, <laughs> like in the north, the cold. Yeah. You wouldn't have a down coat 
that had no sleeves on it. Yeah. I mean, people actually do wear that for a fashion wise, but so the percentage, and there's even ways to calculate if you're building a shade structure, mm. you can calculate, you know, how dense, like the pergola, and what percentage you want 20% shade, 80%. So some of the plants that have compound leaves, like the different kinds of locust, the Kentucky coffee tree. So there's plants where with very tiny leaves, it's letting through a fair amount of sun. And so that, mm. the London plane tree, I mean, that's a go-to that has very big foliage, but not that dense. Mm. That produces a nice dappled shade. Mm-hmm. And then in those conditions, it's often the, the pruning of the tree to maintain the shade. Mm. So without any pruning, a shade tree is going to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it might not be harmonious with the amount of shade you want. Hmm. And so it can also be adjusted where I've gotten so many consults where they say, you know, we have grandkids or children or pets and the backyard is kind of muddy mm-hmm. and we want, I want the lawn to be more vigorous. And so now removing trees sometimes is a possibility, but there's often like a, a compromise where, mm-hmm. where the trees are thin every five years the growth is thinned a little and then there's plenty of sun or whatever for the hydrangeas to bloom or for Mm -hmm. grass. Lovely. All right. Well, that was kind of a soothing episode. (laughs) I envisioned a lot of (laughs) shady, lovely gardens, but um, do you have anything else for us that you'd like to share this episode? Oh, it's a good article. I was like suggesting, you know, good sources, fine gardening. I mean, that's like a whole, they have fine home building and I've contributed to different parts of that. Fine Gardening has good articles on gardening and shade. And then it's very practical. And it's often, there's often suggestions for multiple climates. There was one dry shade in Northern California. Awesome. So where you live might not be the most literature or suggestions. And you're thinking, oh, people are always saying Japanese maples. I can't, it's it's too hot where I live or too cold. Right. So it's helpful to search when you do an internet search, you can put in your climate zone. That's very helpful to say like 7B and you can find out what climate zone you are, what Mm -hmm. hardiness zone. Mm -hmm. So say like dry shade zone 10 or I'm in northern Minnesota zone three. Right. And that's very helpful. Very good. Well, that sounds like a good principle for us to end on. (laughs) Start with your climate zone and and go from there. So we'll be back with another episode next week. Thank you for listening. And if you have any ideas or questions, you can drop us a line. Our contact information comes up at the end of each episode. So hang on to that. Feel free to follow us on social media. If you have beautiful examples of your shade garden that you'd like to share, we always Mm -hmm. welcome contributions and check us out. Join the conversation anywhere that you prefer to. Hope you get a chance to get out in some lovely landscape sometime soon. Right. It's so restorative. Yeah. Just to get out, even just to step outside for 10 minutes if I'm working away at a desk, mm-hmm. it does wonders. <laughs> Absolutely. So until next week, thanks for listening. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden, a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you. So drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, 
gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details, and also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.